0: If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to meet me in the book of Ruth. We're going to hit the pause button for one week in our study of the gospel according to Mark so that we can instead sit in a story that I believe will speak over us a word of hope and good news in the midst of the current circumstances that we all find ourselves in. These are unprecedented days for our country and world. And this is truly an unprecedented season for us as a church. As we're learning to connect and love each other well during a time where we are unable to meet face to face. In a time where an online platform is the primary place we can as a community of faith actually gather together. Last week when we decided to move to an online platform, we were hoping that our decision was going to have been one that was overly cautious Knowing what we know now, nothing was an overreaction and nothing was overly cautious. Instead, we are seeing how important heeding the call for social distancing truly is. And this heed coming from trusted scientific and healthcare communities as well as our government officials. As your pastor, I want to encourage you in these days to make wise decisions and to stay informed. Please do not rely on Facebook. Or that opinionated dude that you graduated high school with to get all of your information regarding COVID-19. Instead, (laughs) please make sure to get your information from trustworthy sources, such as the CDC and the World Health Organization. As much as you can and are able, let's do our part to stay home and to flatten the curve. With that being said... I also want you to know that I am, as your pastor, consistently seeking ways to better connect with you and serve you during this season, and I want you to be assured that the rest of our staff are doing the same thing. We're having to, as leaders, learn and grow on the fly, and by God's grace, respond wisely to new information that we are receiving every single day. I want to lead you to see this time not as much as an obstacle to our growth, but as an opportunity for growth. In a time that we can develop new skills and have more tools that we will have to better serve others in our future. With that being said, let us go to the Word of God. To one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. Where we'll meet a woman today whose story I believe will bring a word of hope and good news to us. We are a people who are yearning for good news. And we will receive it today from the book of Ruth. And from the greater story that we will find pointed to from this book, the redemptive and sure and finished work of Jesus Christ. So let's pray together, and then we'll dive into this beautiful book of the Bible. Father, thank you so much for the book of Ruth and the hope and the encouragement that we find in these pages. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear not only the story that is before us here in Ruth, but that we would see uh, Christ Jesus, who is whispered on every page of this book. God, I pray that we would uh, find hope in the gospel of Jesus this morning, that we will know that you are a God who is with us and you are for us and you are never against us. Wherever we are, that is where you will meet us today. Lord, we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord. Alright, so if you're there in Ruth 1, I want you to meet me in, in verse 1. And we'll go ahead and read the first five verses and then we'll, we'll uh, <clears throat> make some notes there in, in, on the, at the, in that spot. Alright, verse 1. In the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And so what we want to do in these five verses is, is see point number one, that we need to meet Naomi, and we want to see her real-life season of suffering and pain. And so just the, what sticks out in these, in these verses is the first, I want you to notice the significance of the story. And so right there in verse one, we're told that in the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so when we see this phrase, we can learn about this time and learn about this setting just by going one book of the Bible back. And so the the book prior to Ruth is the book of Judges. And so that's where we learn about the dark days when Judges ruled. The very last verse of the book of Judges gives us a summary of this entire book. It says, "...in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes." If you've never read the book of Judges, it is a hot mess of a story. Okay, And so the entire book is filled with horrible decisions made by God's people. God constantly reaching down, saving them, and them doing the same you know, thing over and over and over again. There's no king in the land. They don't have leadership that they need. And everybody is just doing what they believe is right and wise. It's not working out well for them at all. That is the season of life or or the time in history that we find the book of Ruth. And so in those days we meet this little family who is in the midst of a famine in their land. And so if you were, you know, looking at this as far as in the original language, there is certainly a play on words here. And so you have Bethlehem in the sentence. The way that it works, the word Bethlehem actually means house of bread. And so the sentence says this, is that that there was a famine in the land where there was no bread in the house of bread. And so it was in this condition that a man named Elimelech, his wife Naomi, and their two sons, they leave town, they leave during a time of a famine, and they go to the country of Moab. What do we need to know about Moab? Well, I'm glad that you asked that. What we need to know about Moab is that this would have been extremely taboo for the people of God to go to the country of Moab. The best way to describe that, knowing that there are kids in the room and there's gonna be kids, you know, listening to the sermon, and so that you don't have to have harder conversations than you need to today, I will just say this: is that Moab was known for its immorality. In fact, the very beginning of Moab came in a really awkward scene that we find in Genesis nineteen in an incestuous relationship that Lot has with his daughters, okay? So that is where, you know, there's a baby born. The baby's name is Moab. That is the beginning of what we will know as this country of Moab. From that day on, they are really known for their immorality. So this would not have been the place that Elimelech's, you know, rabbi or the, the leaders over him, they would not have suggested for him to go here, but he goes there anyway and he takes his family. We won't really consider his decision-making anymore. It's not really that important for the rest of the story. But they go to Moab, possibly on an ill-advised uh, trip or move. But they get there. They end up you know, planting their lives in this country. And what do we find out? Well, we, we see that Elimelech will die. He dies. We don't know why, uh, but he dies. We find out that the sons will marry Moabite wives. One is Orpah. The other is Ruth. Then the sons die, and Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law who love her and who are great. But she is in a foreign land, and she is without her husband and her two boys. Okay, And so we, we see her real-life experience of suffering and pain there in the first five verses. Let's move on to the second point, though, and we'll keep reading through the story. Is I don't want us just to see it. I want us to feel her suffering and her pain. And we will do that as we make our way through the text here. So, starting in verse six, we see that she arose with her daughters in law to return from the country of Moab. She had gotten word that in the field, in, while she was in the fields of Moab, that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so, this is just a little glimpse of hope. And she, you know, it at least motivates her enough to get up to face Bethlehem and start making her way back to her home. Verse seven says that she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law and they, let's see, where am I? Right there. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return to you, and to, I mean, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Know, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and she left. She went home, but we're told that Ruth clung to her. And so, in this text, for you know, since we have read it, we need to understand what is going on here and what in the world Naomi is talking about when we see what she's talking about, it's going to invite her and it's gonna invite us into what she's thinking about and honestly how blind she is to the potential for a life outside of her present circumstances. She has this unique conversation when they say, hey, we're gonna go with you, we're gonna go with you to your people. She says, no, turn back. What good is it for you to come with me? Could I possibly provide for you a child right now that would grow up and that you would end up marrying. And so she makes this really awkward statement. She says, I'm too old right now. I don't wanna go get a husband. You know, I, It's not time for me to get married. Even if I did get married and I had a kid tonight, is that gonna help you? No, you're not gonna wait. Please go back to your, you know, your parents' house, find you a Moabite dude, get married, have a family, do, you know, live life here. There's no hope for you if you come with me not for a life of being provided for. That's what she tells them. And so for us to understand that, we have to see that this is rooted in Old Testament law. And so what she's talking about here actually finds its place in Deuteronomy 25. Uh, You don't need to turn there right now, but just to kind of give you a summary statement, there's a law that God gave his people that helped to provide and to protect people who had been widowed. And so the, the way this would work and... Certainly not agreeing with you know the way that women were treated in these days, but if you were a woman and you were widowed in this time, if you had you did not have a husband to protect you and to provide you inheritance uh, from from the estate, you were basically left to, you know, be in a cycle of poverty that would be very difficult to get out of. And so God and his law provided for the widows of the land and so the way that he provided was through a law known as the kinsman redeemer law and it seems super awkward for us it is extremely different than you know what we think of you know when we plan out you know when you plan out a wedding or think about you know life that you would love to have we usually have a romantic view of this and I'm certainly not saying that there's not romance involved even in the book of Ruth. You know, if you keep reading, you're going to see a romantic story, you know, at least to some degree that's going to take place between Ruth and Boaz. There certainly was romance to be had. But the kinsman redeemer law just seems really strange when we read it in light of how we view relationships. And so the way that it would work is that in this case, when Elimelech passes away and Naomi is left without her husband, the kinsman-redeemer law would then come into effect where the nearest kin to Elimelech would then have the opportunity to take Naomi as his wife. And in doing that, the, you know, the hope would be that they would have a child and that child would then take on the name of the one who passed away. And so in honoring the deceased... And so it was a way to protect the, the the woman, and it was also a way to honor the one that had passed away. And so Naomi, as she's talking to these two girls, she sees there being no hope for them to have somebody to redeem them when they got to Bethlehem. I don't know if she can't remember that she has particular family that's there, because we're going to learn about at least two if we kept reading in Ruth. So Boaz and there's another man who doesn't get named that is a possible redeemer. And so I don't know if she you know, doesn't know if, they're, you know if they're still there it, or if it's that she just doesn't believe that they would redeem a Moabite. You know, I, I don't know, but she sees there being no way for this to work out well for Ruth or Orpah. Well, Orpah says, you know, peace out and she is gone, but Ruth clings to her. The next verses are going to lead into, you know, where I think we can really feel Naomi's, you know, bitterness and pain and her struggle. But I do want us to, to read these verses that are going to talk about Ruth. It says in verse 15, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And then she gives this crazy vow, this extreme vow that, that really exceeds that of even a marriage vow today. She says, for wherever you, you know, for wherever you go, I will go. She doesn't say wherever you go. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. It's, it's not just to death do us part. She says that wherever you die, that's where I am going to die. Wherever you're buried, that's where I'm going to be buried. And so it's this extreme vow of commitment that she makes to her mother-in-law. She says, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Well, after this, Naomi is even going to try to argue with her. And so she sees that she's determined to go, and she doesn't say another word about it. And so they make their way, verse 19 tells us, to Bethlehem. And so this, this little awkward couple here, you've got Naomi and Ruth the Moabite, and they make their way into the town of Bethlehem, where Naomi has not been in more than a decade. And it says that when she came to Bethlehem, Everybody was talking. The whole town was stirred because of them. And you've got women that are saying, you know, is this Naomi? You know, where's she been? Haven't seen her in forever. Who's this with her? You know, what's going on? They're all asking these questions about Naomi. Well, Naomi gets right in the midst of the potential, I guess, gossip that's taking place. And she said, do not call me Naomi. She comes in just as pleasant as she can be. Now that's fun because her name, Naomi, actually means pleasant or sweetheart. Well, she comes in with a whole bunch of sweetness and she says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. And you see this like real pain that, that Naomi has that she is walking into Bethlehem with. And, and so she says, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And she tells him why. And she gives like this just honest description, an honest feeling that she has. Is it theologically accurate? No. Is it really good for her to be believing in what she's about to say? Not really, no. But it's an honest reaction to her true pain. And just as a side note, I, I would take this as a pastor any day over just some fake statement of I'm good. As I read this though, I do want you to understand when she says what she does, you're gonna feel exactly where the root of her pain is going. And so look look at this right here. It says, she tells the, the people, she says, the Almighty, that's the Lord God Almighty. That's who she's talking about. This is the word Elohim. This is the Almighty, powerful, creative God of the Bible. He has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? If you will, for just a moment, turn in your Bibles from Ruth, hold your place there, and go all the way to Genesis 3. I'm going to take a detour to the third chapter of Genesis. I want you to see this unfold and this lie that <laughs> Naomi is going to believe in this moment that that is a lie that actually happens in the very fall of man. And so I want you to see it. If you look at chapter 2 of Genesis, it talks about the the creation of God in the garden. And so look with me at, you know, right there in the middle of verse 4 of chapter 2, God is creating all things and it says that in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It uses this phrase, Lord God. Now, the Lord is all capital letters. That's the personal name of God. That's Yahweh. That's a name that when we think of the personal name of God, we think of God's goodness, his nearness, his presence. The word God next to it is the word that Naomi uses, and that's Elohim. That's the almighty, powerful God of creation. And so what we see is the description in Genesis 2 is the Lord God. This is the personal good God of the Bible who has created all things, who's sovereign and powerful. The same God that is sovereign and powerful is also good. Well, that's seen, I mean, throughout the entire chapter. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. We see it says, For the Lord God... The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. We see in verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of the dust. We see in verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. We see it again in verse 9, verse 15, verse 16. We see it again there in 18, and 19, and 21, and verse 22, we see this phrase, the Lord God. At the very beginning of chapter 3, the one that the ESV describes as the fall, We see, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so we see it once again there in chapter 3, verse 1. But look at what happens directly after that. He said to the woman, that's the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? After that, it says, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And what we see is this change in language from chapter 2 to chapter 3 of the Lord being described as the personal good God of the Bible that also is the almighty sovereign creator. We see him then stripped away of his personal goodness in chapter 3. And now there now is just this God who lords over us with things, uh, or or in a way that is not for our good. In fact, the serpent is going to lead Eve to believe that God is actually against her. He's actually keeping good from her. That's the name that's here. The, The name Elohim is a good name. But if we see it apart from the goodness of God, it can lead us into all kinds of trouble. Well, Naomi is struggling with this very thing. And so I want us to, for just a minute, the the third point of our day, I want us to seek to understand Naomi's real-life struggle and see if we can identify with her in her pain. And so, you know, the truth is for us to rightly follow the Lord in our lives, especially when we're walking through, you know, moments of darkness and struggle, we must believe that God is both great and God is good. God is great and God is good. In, in the text that we're in, Naomi is struggling to believe his goodness. She didn't have a problem saying that he's sovereign, that he's big, that he's almighty. She just doesn't believe he's for her in that moment. In fact, she actually said that he has brought calamity upon me and he's testified against me. And so the, the truth is, for anybody listening to this message today, is that the God of the Bible is never against you. He's never against you. He's always. For you and never against you. We'll talk about that more in just a little bit. But let's just consider this uh, for just a moment these two realities that God is both, according to the Bible, great and God is good. I have struggled in many times in my Christian walk believing both of these at the same time. There have been times where I believe that God was sovereign and that He was almighty, that He was great, but I lack to see His goodness. And so, you know, it was in those moments that I certainly became, you know, at times very apathetic. I, you know, struggled greatly to have joy in those days and, and really walk in the truth. It was hard to abide when I believed that God was great, but I didn't trust in his goodness. Well, you know, Naomi's there. I have certainly been there. You probably have been too. But since we're here, I've also been on the other end of it where... I could see and believe and and felt like I could take in the goodness of God, but I struggled to believe that he was big enough or powerful enough to really do anything about it. Well, wherever you are today in this, I want you to know that that is the exact place that God will meet you. He'll meet you there. He met Naomi where she was, and we'll see that play out. He doesn't leave her in, in this place of believing that he's against her, but we do see that that's actually where she was. That was her true pain, and that was what was actually in her mind today. And so, once again, if, if you are in a place that is similar to Naomi, if you can connect with her here in chapter 1, I want to just encourage you that God meets you there. He will, he will truly meet you where you are. <clears throat> but he doesn't leave Naomi there, and he won't leave us there either. And so, let's look at the end of chapter 1. Let's pick up in verse 22. We see that Naomi has returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. And it says that they returned from the country of Moab, which we've been following the story. But but then the last statement is this. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And so we saw them leave Bethlehem in chapter 1. It was Naomi, Elimelech, and her two boys. They leave in the midst of a famine. And now we see her return with Ruth. At the beginning of the barley harvest. This chapter is giving or is ending with a glimpse of hope. It's a foreshadowing of blessing in the midst of what appeared, you know, to be a curse to Naomi. <clears throat> and so I think we we see that here in the story, and we see this. You know, over and over again in the Bible, we see a theme of people when they find themselves in their darkest hour, you know, their most oppressed moment. We see the God of the Bible not only seeing them, but moving to their need. He rescues them, He meets them in that moment. So the chapter ends. There, but I don't want our message to end there, and so we're going to not only look at the foreshadowing that we have there in verse 22, but we're also going to skip ahead, and so it's going to be a little spoiler alert, but it will definitely help us tie this text together. And since we're not going through chapters one through four, you know, in sermons, this will be a really a summary sermon of the entire book of Ruth. And so, what I want us to do is. Fast forward from Ruth 1, you know where we hit the pause button for just a second, I guess before we fast forward and see Ruth. I mean, see Naomi in a place where she is just in the dark. She doesn't know where her next step is going to be, and she is believing that God is actually against her. Well, fast forward to chapter 4 verse 16 to an amazing scene where we find Naomi with a child in her lap. And I I do want you to know this is not a child that has come from her womb. In chapters 2, 3, and the beginning of 4, there is a story that will unfold where Ruth will end up marrying a really great guy named Boaz. They will will be married. They will have a child, and that is the child that is spoken about here in verse 16. So it says that Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap. And became his nurse. The the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David." I don't know if you feel this when you when you read it. I don't know if you even recognize it. Today, your you know, brain may not be very sharp. Mine has not felt sharp for, for much of this day. And so you may not be making the connections that you certainly should be as you read this text. Okay, but I won't shame you. We'll just lead you here, okay? The end of this tells us that not only is there a, a child in the picture, and so we know that so much good and so much of God's goodness has come you know, since the scene in chapter 1. But what we also see is something bigger than a good ending to a sweet story. We, we see a powerful work of God to bring about redemptive history for His people. And so if you'll remember our setting, This is the time of judges. This is the time when there is no king in the land. Everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. Well, it's in this, that time, that dark time. In fact, that's really the darkest time in Old Testament history. It's in that moment that God was working out good for his people through this family who was having a hard time seeing how God could possibly even be present. In fact, they believed he was against them. Well, what we see here is the child's name is, is given a wonderful name to name your kid Obed, okay? So if, you're, if you've named your kid Obed, that's awesome, okay? But that's that's the name of this kid, uh, Obed. We're told that he is the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. And so at the time when there's no king in the land, God was through this family going to bring about the greatest king that Israel would ever know, the king David. And so... It's just a surprising ending here. I love to think about this in the same or in a similar way as I do Marvel movies. Okay, And so if you've watched, I forgot how many there are, there's 21 or 22, however many there are. You've got the story that you are watching unfold in the Marvel movie. But then at the end, the story that you thought you were watching or that you thought was complete, it's over. And then the credits come, but then nobody leaves the theater. Why do they not leave the theater? Well, because they're waiting on the next scene. And so there's an extra scene, and that scene tends to serve to, you know, connect us from the movie that we just watched to the greater narrative of the Marvel storyline. And so, you know, in the later movies, you had not just one extra scene, but sometimes you had two extra scenes, and it was really confusing, you know, to do that. Uh, here in the, the text, there's nothing confusing About this. We just have the ending of what we already thought was a great story with Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, but we're now led into a bigger narrative, a bigger story. And even from that story, we're pointed outside of the time where God is going to meet the need of the people who didn't have a king with King David. And we're actually going to be pointed outside of that to the time where Jesus Christ will come. He will die. He will raise. And he will be, uh, he will resurrect as the greatest king, our, our ultimate king, King Jesus. <clears throat> when we see this story you know, it just motivates me, one, to read Hebrew narrative and narrative in Scripture because it's super fun and just awesome. But it also leads me to believe this. That though God may appear to be silent, He is never absent. That, that God may seem to be far away. The truth is that He's very near. And we see that here in the story of Ruth. I want us to... End our time in Ruth today with four truths for us to walk away with. The first truth is this: is that the God of the Bible meets us in our suffering and pain. He meets us in our fears and in our deepest struggles and, and the truth that we see here in Ruth and we see it throughout the scriptures is this: the Bible doesn't hide the reality of suffering and pain for god 's people. He does not hide it in fact. The son of God himself, this is God in the flesh, comes to this earth and he suffers and he even dies in our place. So if the Bible doesn't hide the reality of suffering and pain, neither should we, his church. So first truth to walk away with is that not only does the Bible not hide the reality of suffering and pain, but the God of the Bible meets us in our suffering and pain. The second truth for us to walk away with is this, is that God can be trusted in the midst of our sufferings. I want to take you to a place in Romans 8. We're actually going to read several scriptures (coughs) from there before we're done today. But (coughs) one is this, it's in chapter 8, verse 31. And the question goes like this, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things The reason why I read that text is this is that we can read the book of Ruth and we can be encouraged by what we see with the way that God cares for and meets Naomi and her needs we can see that Naomi you know just you know she have just trusted God the whole time you know but, you know look to him trust him he's trustworthy But it's possible for us I believe in our times of suffering to question whether we can trust God. You know, how can we know that He's truly for us? How can we know that He's not against us? And the scripture that I just read answers it. It's because in the darkest of times, God met our greatest of needs in the cross of Christ, in the finished work of Jesus. The time when, uh, you know, more than any other time in history, that God must have appeared silent but we certainly know he was not absent in fact he was working out the greatest good that has ever been along with that you know third thing that we see in ruth or the third takeaway for us <clears throat> is this is that we can know or be reminded that god is both great and he is good and when i say that i don't want to spend a whole lot of time but i just want you to be reminded that <clears throat> you know god is strong enough to meet the greatest of our needs. But he's also good and he desires to do so. He loves us and cares for us. We're reminded of his kindness and his mercy and his compassion along with his strong hand and his sovereignty. And so the book of Ruth points us to this. The cross of Christ and the redemptive work of Christ you know, shows us this most clearly. But we can know that God is both great and he is good. The last thing I want us to see today is this, is that the book of Ruth points us to a future glory in Christ. It reminds us of the glory of Jesus or points us to the glory of Jesus. And the the way the, the point of application I would give you is this, is a glimpse of our future glory in Christ ought to transform the way we live in our present circumstances. I'll read a couple of scriptures for you to see where we are and then we'll finish up. The first one is from Romans 8 as well and it's the apostle Paul writing here in verse 18 where he says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time and and just to make a point that dude knew some suffering okay he suffered so much for the cause of Christ he says for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. is that he knew that even when, while he suffered, that, that the best was yet to come for his life. That God was, you know, was working for his glory, but also for Paul's good. And he knew that there was a day when the glory that he would walk in and that he would receive was enough to bear any suffering in this present life. He speaks in a similar way in Second Corinthians chapter four, but I would like to read it for you. It's verse 16. <clears throat> he says that we do not lose heart. though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This passage just reminds us that, yes, there are, there are very real sufferings that we walk in today. In fact, what we're experiencing as a country currently and what we're experiencing as a world currently, this is actual suffering that the Bible doesn't ask us to act like is not happening. In fact, it it allows us to even own up to it and embrace Him in the midst of it. It reminds us that He meets us in our sufferings. But we also are reminded in the Scriptures that this is not all that there will be that there is a future glory in Christ where He is going to come again. He's going to remove all pain and all suffering. He's going to remove all diseases and all viruses. He's going to remove fear itself and even death. And when He comes, the Word of God, this is Revelation 21, the Word of God tells us that, that God will come Himself and He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. You know, we know that there is a day when Christ returns that we'll, we will experience the fullness of our hope in Christ. The fullness of our hope of resurrection. As for now, we trust him in his, greatest, in, in his greatness and in his goodness, even in what may, what may be a time of suffering. Even what may be a time where he appears to be silent. There's a poem that I really love by William Cowper that I'll read that I think says this so well. He says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. It's just a reminder that even when we can't see his good hand at work in the midst of our darkness or in our difficult or suffering days, we can believe that God is here, that he is not far from us, that he is near to us, and he is working out, you know, his glory, and he is working out good for us, his people. I love this book. I uh, hope and I pray that it has been an encouragement to you. I hope that it has you know, spoken a word of good news over your life today. I want to end our time by reading a prayer, uh, one, a prayer that I have been reading each day, each morning, as part of a liturgy that has been encouraging my heart day by day. The prayer goes like this. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors.